The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So today I was just going to talk about uh, something that's come up for me, you know, in the last few weeks, and uh, I thought this was something that uh, may be useful for others, and that's that uh, we can feel quite overwhelmed by a lot of the negative events in our lives, personally, and in the world. I know there's so many things that happen in our lives, some of them difficult to deal with, particularly in our relationships with others. That's the tough one, usually, whether it's at home, at work, at school, wherever. But of course, it's not only our relationships, not only on a personal level, it's also on the level of the world, isn't it? We see what's going on in the world. And because we have such good coverage these days, we see a lot of it in great detail. And it seems like everybody has a phone when anything's happening and they're videoing whatever happens. So we get first-hand experience or first-hand viewing of, of what's going on. And so we have, you know, Ukraine, what's happened in the Ukraine, what's happening in Sri Lanka, of course. We're really seeing Sri Lanka in turmoil at the moment and in other places around the world, like Japan at the moment, I think, going through rather an upheaval too. People never thought it could happen in Japan that a prime minister, ex-prime minister, could be assassinated like that. It's a real shock to them, I think. It's sort of shocking their sense of security, you know, in the society, the values that uh, they hold. So when we experience these sort of situations in our personal life or, you know, when we view the news, when we reflect about what's going on in the world, we can develop these negative uh, reactions. We can feel angry, upset, we can feel depressed, uh, worried, we can feel fearful, all these things, anxious, I think I mentioned. And these reactions are quite natural. Um, they're not necessarily useful, but they're quite natural. And it's quite encouraging to see that, in fact, the Buddha-to-be, when he looked at the world, he had similar feelings, but it gave rise to a very positive emotion, which I'll talk about in a minute. We call sangvega, a sense of urgency. For most of us, when we get negative emotions, it just sort of disables us. <laughs> we feel like we can't do anything. But for the Buddha-to-be, it really propelled him on his spiritual path. And I'll talk a little bit about that later. So then it's useful when we reflect in that way. And um, what came to me uh, in relation to this, of course, is um, the uh, a simile that uh, I... Ah, yes, yes, one other thing I was going to mention too, because what happens when we reflect in this way and we have these reactions, quite often people will think, are people inherently, are human beings inherently bad? We used to have this word evil a few years ago, it was the, the sort of fashion to use evil. Are they inherently bad? Because that's what, what comes up, doesn't it, when you see a lot of negative events, either in your personal life or, you know, in the news, in the world around us. And so that was one of the issues that uh, I thought worth addressing in this talk. And that's, I think that was driving what came, actually, as uh, um, uh, 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 the main, the main uh, theme for this talk, which is, uh, and I describe it, it's a simile I used... 
uh, five years ago in a talk, actually. I was recently reminded that uh, I gave a talk five years ago, and it was called uh, The Mind Like a Blue Sky. And uh, uh, this person told me also other people have used it too. <laughs> but I'm not sure how they used it, in what context they used that simile. So it came to me, and I think this is a very common experience for everybody. Has everybody here be, uh, had, a, uh, had taken a flight somewhere? I think nearly everybody has. I mean, isn't it interesting? And 50 years ago, you asked that question, and probably there'd be a handful of people, maybe, who would have said, yeah, I've, I've had a flight, you know, I've taken a flight. And certainly, 75 years ago, there'd be far, far less. And many people said, well, I've been on a boat, on a ship, so... But when we get on a plane and it takes off, actually when we, we get on the plane, particularly here in Melbourne in winter, it can be very overcast, very cloudy, very stormy, uh, can be raining and uh, quite dark. And um, we get on the plane and the plane takes off. And the plane, and it's, uh, it may, as it goes through the clouds, get a buffeting too, you know, a bit of turbulence. Everybody gets excited, <laughs> holds on to whatever they can hold on to. And then, but the amazing thing is, then the, the plane goes straight through the clouds. And what's on the other side? Blue sky and the sun. And it's just, it's, uh, you know, when we get so used, if you travel a lot, you think, so what? So what? <laughs> But it does make, made quite an impact on me at various times, just to think that above all these clouds and the storm, there's really blue sky going on. And it's, it seems to have been going always like that, really, uh, despite the clouds, despite the weather we're experiencing on the ground or below. And I found that I, my reaction to that was that it's quite inspiring and uplifting. And because I think because of the vastness of the, the sky, um, it looks very peaceful and it looks very pure and uh, it, it reminds me of like when I dive into water if you've dived into water and it's a very silent world very peaceful down there you don't hear much sound unless you're wearing uh, using a scuba outfit with the oxygen tank or whatever and you probably hear the bubbles and, uh, and of course it reminds me that many Christians might think of it as, you know, they had this idea of, they used to have this idea of um, these woolly clouds and this was like heaven, <laughs> that idea. So it'd be interesting, I thought this really, for me, that caught the mind. And this is the power of similes. You see, um, I've been talking about recently about some of the similes the Buddha used, and I gave a talk last month about the simile, the shorter discourse on the simile of the elephant's footprint. And the Buddha used similes all the time because they really catch our minds and they really engage us and they, uh, they sort of bring out issues that we're dealing with and different ways of looking at it. And so... Um, this simile, in this simile, I thought, well, what do the clouds and storms represent? And I think probably everybody, um, from your own experience, you can sort of uh, um, see, see what these would mean. Because when we're buffeted around by our problems and difficulties in life, by the negative aspects of our minds, we call them the defilements, that's a, a very common experience of 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 this of like going into the clouds, going into a storm, and um, so this is this is the some of the turbulence we experience due to 
And the Buddha points out what the basic, uh, the reason for this. And it's due to our desires, what we want to get, <laughs> aversion, what we want to get rid of, and our delusions too, you know, particularly thinking of this permanent sense of self that we have and taking responsibility for things that we aren't responsible for, trying to control things that we can't control. A very good example, of course, is COVID-19. <laughs> if you get it, you get it. And that's a, it's a very, as I was saying to someone this morning, an impersonal thing. So these clouds are, and also like the problems in the world too. The problems in the world are like these clouds. And one of the very, uh, from, I think for all of us, one of the, uh, the most uh, compelling aspects of it is our negative thinking. It's obvious that is really causing a lot of turmoil in our mind and the negative perceptions that we have. And of course, a lot of this one of the things that uh, buffets us around, blows us around, the Buddha talked about it many, many times. I'd like to give a talk on it, actually. The eight worldly conditions. And this, this list is really, um, it really uh, is so relevant to our experience and it gives rise to a lot of this turbulence in our lives. And this, of course, is try to get stuff, gain, and not being really upset when we lose stuff that is terrible, you know. And also when we uh, have some sort of success or fame and then when we lose it. You know, I think this must be the most uh, devastating thing for people who are famous and then suddenly, poof, gone. They're, they're um, a has-been, that's what we say in English, a has-been. And also when we're praised, you know, everybody likes praise, but then when we're blamed, that's very interesting practice because we can see the sense of self come up immediately we have to defend or we attack. You know, how do you say that? And of course, the thing that's driving us through life, and you see it for many people who are looking for happiness through the senses, this search, this search for pleasure and to avoid pain. This is... This is really a very driving or a strong motivation for us. So all these things. But it's good to remember that these clouds and these storms can have their positive aspect because these problems, as I mentioned, they can really bring a, uh, insight. We can really look at the world and look at ourselves in a very different way um, as a result of the difficulties we experience in life. And as I mentioned, the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, this is what happened to him, and he gave rise to this feeling of sangvega, this sense of urgency. There's something to be done. I should, you know, I need to do something to address these problems. And it's, it is an emotion. This sangvega is an emotion. It motivates people to actually pursue something that's positive, that's constructive. And of course it's what made the bodhisattva want to seek out the spiritual life. It's what really, to a large extent, makes somebody want to become a monk and nun. Because they see the state of the world, they see the state of their minds. And uh, of course they see, the Buddha saw these, recently I've been talking about a teaching he gave in the Sutta Nipata, and he's talking about how all, he's seeing all this violence and conflict in the society at his time, a long time ago, <laughs> and how, you know, this really um, uh, dismayed him. 
and how you know he was disoriented by it and he saw everything as being hollow and empty and where was there a place of safety uh, a home that he could find and that propelled him on his spiritual search looking for that answer looking for that solution to the problems of life and of course for him the the prime ones are you know rebirth old age sickness and death but also the fact, he mentions, they translate it as corruption, but I'd say it's decay, because the, the nature of everything, you know, physic, uh, whether it be a human body, whether it be something inanimate, is to break down, to decay. So he saw all that, and he was looking for an answer, and that's why he uh, was looking for an answer to this unsatisfactoriness, this suffering, this dukkha that we experience in life. So it's not all bad news. And in fact, we all realize that this is what really can motivate us. If we're in our comfort zone, we possibly would not do some of the things. We would not get the energy to actually look for an answer to the problems and difficulties we're experiencing in our lives. And then we can consider what does the blue sky represent. And of course, it's going beyond these problems, you know, these problems that personal problems or the problems of the world. And it's a mind uh, free of the defilements, free, usually temporarily, <laughs> free of desire, aversion and delusion. And so it's this purity of mind. And the blue sky is like, as I mentioned before, a feeling of peace too. And that peace comes from being free of problems, being free of thinking especially negative thinking. And the, uh, the sky being vast or spacious can be like the mind when we meditate, actually. We can experience this incredible spatial spaciousness in the mind. And of course, the blue sky, very still, like the mind can become. And it's one, it's experience of oneness as well. And of course, maybe not on a plane, <laughs> it can be experience of silence as well, which is the absence of thinking. And using that simile reminded me of an experience when, uh, when I went on pilgrimage in 2001 to India and to, to Nepal with Ajahn Brahm. And we were in Kathmandu. Um, we're catching a flight, I think, to Lumbini, where the Buddha was born the Bodhisattva was born. And uh, at, the, um, at the airport, we saw this, this plane, this company, and their name was Buddha Air. Isn't that amazing? Buddha Air. And uh, so, uh, and Ajahn Brahm mentions it quite a bit, Buddha Air, and he uses it in different contexts. And, uh, but uh, we can all... Uh, as it were, board the Buddha air flight that goes through the clouds and really see the mountains. But what does Buddha air stand for? The Noble Eightfold Path. And it's quite interesting. Some people think, well, is that really fitting for the Buddha's teaching to call the Noble Eightfold Path like an airline called Buddha air? But he actually used that simile himself when uh, he described the Noble Eightfold Path as a divine vehicle, like a chariot because uh, Venerable Ananda had just told him about this incredible chariot he saw that was all white, and the person driving it was wearing white clothes, the horses were white, everything was white. And he called it, and Venerable Ananda said, 
is there such a thing as, a, he said, it's like a divine vehicle. And he said to the Lord Buddha, is there such a thing as the uh, uh, divine vehicle in this teaching and training? And the Buddha said, yes, it's a Noble Eightfold Path. <laughs> so we can get on board this uh, flight, this Buddha air flight, and practice the Noble Eightfold Path that enables us to go past those clouds, to deal with the storms. And uh, the, really, it's, it's the way we can get through those storms is by practicing the whole Noble Eightfold Path. There are some important elements, and I'll talk about them, but certainly the way we speak, the way we act, and how we make our living is very important. And this is always called virtue or morality. This is where we can reduce some of the storms, some of the clouds in our lives. Because if we can keep precepts, then it reduces a lot of the turbulence in our lives. Because you see, most of the drama, don't we, that occurs in people's lives comes from breaking the five precepts, whether it be um, killing uh, living beings, especially a human being, or stealing. Sexual misconduct is a very big one these days. And um, lying and taking alcohol and drugs is often a doorway to many serious problems in uh, a relationship, in families. So all, the whole Noble Eightfold Path is important. And, but two aspects I was going to emphasize is right view and also uh, some are, uh, right mindfulness and right samadhi because they are crucial for changing the way we see the world. Because right view uh, gives meaning, it allows us to understand these problems, puts them in context, it gives us a perspective of what these uh, uh, problems are about, where they're coming from. And that's so important. So the you can relate them to the Four Noble Truths when you get the clouds and storms in our lives. Definitely the First Noble Truth of yeah, suffering or unsatisfactoriness. And um, uh, it's also, we can see the cause of it, which is, uh, you know, wanting, craving. And then the blue sky is like ending of the problems, ending of the difficulties, ending of the unsatisfactoriness, ending of suffering. And also it's the path to do that as well, the path that leads us out of it. And I always, I come back to this saying very often because I think it's a nice saying. Viktor Frankl is a, a, a famous uh, psychologist who uh, was in a Jewish concentration camp uh, in the Second World War. And uh, he wrote a wonderful book called Man's Search for Meaning. It's a fantastic book. It really is extraordinary, really. And uh, one of his comments, not in that book, is that suffering without meaning equals despair. And I, th I think this is the message that we see uh, writ large, we say, in life, uh, in the world these days. Because people look around and they just can't understand. They can't get, see the, the meaning behind all this suffering that is, they're experiencing. They get overwhelmed by it. It has no meaning for them. They can't explain it. And uh, so then it leads to this feeling of helplessness, hopelessness, and despair. And so this meaning that right view gives us, you know, the perspective of somebody who's stood outside the, uh, the, the human experience and seen reality for what it is, is very, very powerful. And this is right view, samaditi, so important. And... Uh, so when uh, someone breaks through to the blue sky, 
and through the sun beyond. They're seeing the nature of reality. And the nature of reality is always the same. <laughs> the Buddha said, whether there is a Buddha or not, it's the same. And the, what is that? That nothing lasts, that's all impermanent, it's changing. And that nothing can provide permanent satisfaction. This is unsatisfactoriness or suffering. Even if we get it, we consider we've got it perfect, in a very short time we find it's not quite what we thought it was. So we get used to it and we move on. The mind is changing, so it's no longer perfect. And of course, the other thing is that a, a Buddha sees the nature of reality, that it's all not personal. This body and mind, which we think we own, which we think belongs to us, which we think we control, is not. It's a, it's a process that is occurring. And the Buddha describes that process. And this understanding actually can really relieve a lot of suffering for people, actually, if they, if they, because we take everything so personally. And then when you realize, well, no need to take it personally. Like somebody was apologizing this morning for having COVID, and I'd, I'd seen them uh, yesterday, and we're wearing masks and everything. And I, I said to her, look, it's not personal. It's a, you know, it's a, a virus that spreads. And uh, we do what we can, don't we? But, you know, it's not something we have control over. So, so that's uh, some of the... And then it, uh, it, it was, I was thinking too that about the question of and relating this simile to the, uh, whether people are inherently bad. Because we have this in some religions, especially the religions of the Middle East, have this idea of original sin, that you know beings were really good, were really pure, and then they fell because of uh, uh, eating from the tree of knowledge. This is Adam and Eve, this idea. And uh, it's a very interesting, because knowledge in Buddhism is a good thing. <laughs> but obviously, in this context, it's not a good thing. Um, I don't know what they got knowledge of, but uh, obviously the wrong sort of knowledge. And uh, it's so, but it's, it, this idea is that people uh, are, are inherently, have got this inherent bad quality that they've inherited uh, from the, this, our predecessors, Adam and Eve. And it often gives rise to this feeling that we've got to punish ourselves, we've got to feel guilty about almost everything, that we're responsible for everything. And it's probably, and uh, oftentimes we can feel guilty, and I've experienced this myself. We don't know what we're feeling guilty about. What have I done? You know. But this is a very, very deep, uh, very deep um, uh, aspect of uh, r religious thinking, particularly from the Middle East. And, but of course, according to right view, the, the mind isn't intrinsically bad isn't intrins intrinsically negative, inherently negative. And uh, these are only things that are coloring the mind, affecting the mind. They're not permanent resonance of the mind. And there's a lovely um, quotation, which I will read, because I think it's uh, very nice. It's, uh, it's one from the Buddha in the uh, numerical discourses, in the Book of Ones, they call it. And uh, this is Ajahn uh, Sujato's translation. And he says, this mind, he says mendicants, but I prefer, prefer monastics, is radiant, but it is corrupted by passing corruptions. 
an uneducated ordinary person does not un- truly understand this, that they are passing, they're just visiting. Uh, so, I, so I say that the uneducated ordinary person has no development of mind. And then the, the next verse, which is the opposite, <laughs> is the mind mendicants is radiant and, is, and it is freed from passing corruptions and an, an, an educated noble disciple, an educated noble disciple truly understands this. So I say that the educated noble disciple has development of mind. And what this means, you know, is really that the mind is one thing and the mind states that we experience are another. And that's good news. If they were permanent fixtures, if they were there for good, if that's who we were, then what could we do about it? Nothing much. <laughs> we would just be... And you do see people that have this attitude about, well, I'm just like that. That's my character. As if it's, you know, if it's permanent, if it's like being set in cement, as if we can't do anything about it. Even though we don't control the mind, we can influence the mind. We can recondition the mind to go in a different direction. And that's what the Buddha's teaching is all about. And he also, the, the Buddha mentions that an undeveloped mind, a mind that isn't de- trained, it hasn't de- uh, isn't trained in these uh, reconditioning aspects of you know, developing an understanding of reality, a mind that isn't developed leads to a lot of suffering, a lot of problems, especially, especially if we think it's coming from me and I and myself, that sort of idea, and mine, all that. That creates a lot of problems. And he says that a developed mind, he always does the opposite, leads to so much happiness, brings such happiness when we develop the mind through understanding and through practicing the sila, practicing the morality, through practicing meditation. And so this is very good news that these qualities are not permanent, that they're just passing corruptions. If, and as I mentioned, you know, if they were permanent, what could we do about it? Nothing. But the Buddha, the good news is that it is changing, is impermanent. We can influence it. We can't control them. And we've seen, everyone has seen for themselves, you can get trains of thoughts, trains of emotions that just repeat again and again. And you think, enough, enough, it still keeps going. <laughs> And then I ask people, well, do you think it's your mind when you, when you, when you, when you have these, as it were, recordings playing? And it, it points to the fact how programmed our experience is. But we can influence that program, and that's what the, the Buddha is doing with his teachings. And these qualities, of course, they come around, come about from conditioning, from the influences in our lives. But very strongly, they come from repetition. So somebody who is uh, inclined to get angry, if they keep repeating it again and again, they'll get pretty good at that. And somebody, you know, many people say, well, I'm not very good at this meta, this loving kindness or kindness, friendliness, I prefer those words, really. And I'm not very good at it. Good at it. But if they practice it again and again, it will become, they'll become good at it. They'll become, it will become the, their, part of their character, part of their personality. And that's a good message, really, because if you really think about it, 
I mean, you know, Angulimala, he was a famous uh, a disciple of the Buddha, and he was a serial killer who had killed 999 people before he met the Buddha. And, uh, and yet, I mean, it's extraordinary to me that the Buddha would actually ordain him. You know, he, he, uh, he met the Buddha and the Buddha said, oh, stop. And uh, the Angulimala said, but you're walking. The Buddha was still walking. He said, I have stopped Angulimala. I've stopped harming people. I've stopped harming beings. You stop. And that was enough for him to really flip. You know, and this was a, a moment uh, where he, he of insight and he requested to be ordained. Who in their right mind would ordain somebody like that? <laughs> it's bad news. But the Buddha did because he could see his potential. And also he realized this is not a permanent serial killer. You know, even though he's, he'd, he'd killed 999 people and certainly had quite a strong tendency to kill people, the Buddha could see that there was potential for change, potential for developing the path, potential for becoming fully enlightened, fully awakened. Extraordinary, isn't it? So, you know, it shows the possibility of developing the mind. So how do we develop the mind so that it becomes radiant and pure? Of course, the Noble Eightfold Path, as I mentioned, is, is the whole, is that practice. And all of it is needed. You know, sometimes we focus on one or two aspects, but all of it is needed. Otherwise, the Buddha wouldn't have bothered <laughs> mentioning them, actually. But there are uh, two aspects that are particularly important, and uh, they are um, calm meditation, calm med meditation, and the insight that arises from meditation. And he says, uh, uh, and I might, might read this because it's quite nice, actually, says, two things amongst partake of true knowledge. What two? Serenity and insight. When serenity is developed, what benefit does one experience? This is where it's, it links with the previous saying, the mind is developed. This is how we develop the mind, when the mind experiences a serenity. When the mind is developed, what benefit does one experience? All lust or all desire is abandoned. You know, this is really one of the very strong things that drives a lot of our negative emotions. This sort of greed, this wanting to get, this feeling like we're lacking, we need to, to get stuff. And then the second one that he talks about, and when insight is developed, and that comes after we've calmed the mind. When the mind is calm, then we can see things differently. The mind that isn't calm, that isn't settled, that isn't pure of the negative qualities of the mind temporarily, can't see anything different from what we usually see. It uh, makes a lot of sense. And he says, when insight is developed, this comes after calm, what benefit does one experience? Wisdom is developed. When wisdom is developed, what benefit does one experience? All ignorance is abandoned. We really know what's going on. We really know what reality is about. And then the, uh, the Buddha uh, sums up by saying, a mind defiled by lust is not liberated. A mind that's wanting and greedy. And wisdom defiled by ignorance is not developed. Because 
ignorance is not knowing the nature of this body and mind, the nature of reality. Thus, monks, through the fading away of lust, there is liberation of mind. And through the fading away of ignorance, there is the liberation by wisdom. And often when you hear descriptions by the Buddha of liberation, he talks about this. The liberation, sometimes they say, of the heart or the mind. And this is when all the negative qualities have uh, gone. And in this case, gone for good, <laughs> permanently. And then also uh, liberated by wisdom, understanding what experience, what, what uh, the nature of reality is, what life is about. So this meditation is a very uh, crucial part of really reconditioning our, our minds. And when we recondition the mind, of course, that's where our speech and our actions come from. And also, very importantly, I say to people, our minds are where we live. <laughs> so if we want to live in a pleasant place, if we want to live in a happy, enjoyable, contented place, uh, if we want to live in a kind place, a gentle place, we need to develop those qualities within our minds. So often people are looking for it out there, you know, the perfect place to live in, aren't they? A very calm place and beautiful place and all the silent place. They get there and they find there's a lot of turbulence still. There's still these different emotions, negative emotions coming up because this is where we really live. Wherever we go, we take this mind with us. So it is our home, <laughs> as it were, it's our experience. And interestingly enough, however we develop the mind, whether positively or negative, negatively, that's how the world will look. And of course, I think most people can see that. You know, if we have a lot of depression or anger or rage, we look in the world and that's all we're going to see. We're going to see it everywhere. If we have contentment, peace um, and uh, goodness at heart, when we look at the world, that's what we will see too. So this is very important, you know, the way we meditation to develop the mind. And of course this is in the Noble Eightfold Path. It's uh, samasati and samasamadhi, right mindfulness and right samadhi. Or uh, stillness or oneness, that's what samadhi can translate as. I usually say concentration, but Ajahn Brahm goes, whoa. <laughs> So these can take us beyond the clouds, um, beyond the clouds and storms of the defilements and of the negative perceptions of all the thinking as well. And the process, you see it in meditation, um, uh, you can see it quite easily in meditation, is you know, when we let go of the past and future, so much of the storms and clouds we experience, all the upsets, the turbulence, the problems, are in the past, or related to the future, you know, what could happen, what will happen. So when we sit down to meditate, that's one of the first things we do, let go of the past and the future. And I often say to people, to encourage us, encourage myself, that there's nothing we have to do now, and there's nowhere we have to go. We're so habituated to um, the past and the future, that we miss the present. And I saw recently someone donated a book by John Kabat-Zinn. It's about um, 
I think it's called Basics of Mindfulness, but the thing that caught me was the, the subtitle, and it said, Reclaiming the Present Moment, Reclaiming. And I thought, yeah, that's so true. We miss it. We're so off to the future planning or going over the past, either fondly or regretfully, whichever, whichever the, the, whatever we're focusing on. So that letting go of the past and the future is really huge, just to be here in the present. And I liken it to going on holiday, because if we can get a nice perception that goes with it, it can support being present. You know, we all like going on holiday, vacation, all these things. So it's quite, quite, can be quite useful perception. And then what can happen, of course, the storm clouds of thinking uh, can reduce. And this is when the mind becomes a little bit, it reduces gradually and can disappear, which is uh, when that does happen, and, and I'm sure some of you have experienced that, it's extraordinary, the silence in the mind and... The, the amazing thing is you still know, you're still aware, but without all this thinking and words. Because oftentimes people think, well, I have to be aware, I have to think about stuff and describe it and so forth. No, we can just simply be aware. And so this is, uh, reduces the storms and clouds in our minds even more. And of course, as the process, as the mind becomes uh, more, settles into the present moment, settles into, say, the breath, for instance, the negative, uh, the hindrances, they can reduce. You know, this desire, looking for something else, something to look for happiness, this sort of ill will, you know, and looking and uh, trying to get rid of things. And uh, also the sleepiness can disappear if the mind is really getting bright with awareness. And also uh, restlessness can uh, disappear as well and doubt. So these five hindrances. And they can go completely. And the longer we stay with the breath, we're able to stay with the breath, then these reduce. And the, the main thing in meditation for all of us is to be able to create the interest in the meditation object, say the breath, so that the mind can stay with it long enough for the automatic process that the Buddha describes to take off, which is gladness, giving rise to the sense of a rapture in the body and the mind, giving rise to a sense of tranquility where we let go of the body, and then giving rise to a happiness from that. And then the mind really honing in on that happiness, becoming one-pointed. So that's the process that happens. And when the mind does come together, it's like breaking through to the blue sky, seeing the sun, seeing the radiance of the mind. That is, that is the experience of deep meditation. When, when the mind can stay with the breath long enough, that process will happen and take one to uh, deep meditation. And then, as it is when we're on a plane and we see the blue sky <laughs> after the, uh, beyond the clouds, it's like we're going to another world, because we are. We're going to the world of the mind, which is completely different from the world we live in, which is the five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. But it's also the control panel for our lives, really, is in here, in the mind. And this is where we can really change our experience of the world, and maybe change the world too, because someone like the Buddha... Uh, someone like um, uh, the, many of the uh, great 
the great motivators of this day, um, Mother Teresa, perhaps, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, many other people, you know, they have really made a big impact on the world, coming from a place of peace within themselves. And so I'd just like to finish the talk by encouraging all of us to, to get on board. Buddha air. <laughs> and to soar through the clouds and the storms of our lives in the world, to reach the blue sky beyond, and uh, to do that by developing the Noble Eightfold Path, because that is the way we can develop that purity, uh, which is, gives rise to the radiance, when all the dust of the negative mental states, emotions, is shaken off. And when, because of that, we can see things completely differently. We can develop, we, can, we have clear seeing, I often call it, which is the definition of vipassana. And it happens when the mind is pure, when it's got uh, let go of all these uh, hindrances, defilements, then we can see things as they truly are. And it gives rise then to wisdom and insight. We can develop wisdom and insight. And what do we develop wisdom and insight into? the nature of this, our own bodies and minds, what we're experiencing, and not only that, the nature of reality. And the nature of reality, as I said, is always the same. In Pali we say anicca, dukkha, and anatta, and that's often translated as impermanent, impermanent suffering and non-self. But, and I think it's important to add, when a person develops this wisdom, when they develop this understanding of their own body and mind, when they understand the nature of reality, the nature of the world, what does it lead to? What did it lead the Buddha to? Compassion. To do what they can for others, to do what they can for themselves as well. Compassion is what arises in a wise person because they, they realize the predicament we're all in, the human situation, as they call it, that we're all in, and they want to help in whatever way they can. And of course, that's what the Buddha gave us, his teachings, the Noble Eightfold Path. Not just a philosophy, something we can practice. Philosophy is useful, because it can change the way we look at things, but it can't change it deeply. There has to be a path of practice that can recondition the mind so that we can develop this radiant mind, we can see things as they truly are. So this is, this is the point of the Noble Eightfold Path. So let's get on board, <laughs> Buddha air. So thank you very much for, that, uh, for this opportunity to give that talk on the blue sky mind. That's what I call it, blue sky mind. Right, everybody, there we are. We usually have questions, first of all, from anybody here, and then um, uh, we alternate with one from online. So, are there any questions about, or comments, complaints? <laughs> 
as I often mention, I had a complaint once from a, somebody when I was doing a meta meditation. They said they felt irritated and annoyed. And I said, it didn't work for you, did it? <laughs> but it was quite... The reason he was irritated and annoyed was he's more used to silent meditations, not guided, you know, so the speaking was a bit intrusive. So that was the reason. But it was quite, quite interesting. All right, oh, there we are. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, there. All right, there's two Thank you for the talk, Ajahn. Hello, Ignacio. Hello. Yes. Um, how do you, when you see a lot of suffering, how do you not allow it to steer into depression and, like you say, get that sense of urgency to practice instead? Yeah, yeah. That's right. How do you avoid sinking into depression or... Uh, how do you arouse that sense of sangvaiga um, for, you know, that sense of urgency for doing something about what we're experiencing? And that's really going to depend on um, the view we have of what we're experiencing. And that's why I emphasised in this talk right view, um, samaditi, because the way we see things really, really conditions our response. Um, we have... Um, that, uh, for instance, if we have a view, then we'll tend to perceive things. They call this sanya vipalasa, the distortions of perception. The way we view things is the way we see things. We will perceive things. And the way we perceive things will start us thinking about them. So if we perceive in a very negative way, perceptions will just uh, chime in. You know, we'll think, oh, God, it's all bad news. And then you'll look at some uh, more news on the internet or the BBC news, whatever it is. Say, oh, yeah, look, there it is, there it is. I can see it. Oh, no, I never thought it'd go this bad. And then we can start thinking about it. Wow, isn't it terrible? I mean, good grief. This is awful. I wonder what my neighbours are up to. <laughs> that sort of thing. So this is the... It really depends where we start from, in a sense. So view is so important. And that's why the Buddha is, is emphasizing right view. Noble Eightfold Path. I often thought, why is it right? You know, we say right this, right that. And, well, if the view isn't right, isn't, isn't the appropriate view, it will mean all the other factors are not right. They won't lead to uh, awakening. It's right because it will lead to awakening or enlightenment. But if the view is not right, everything else falls falls apart and that's not the Noble Eightfold Path. It won't take us to liberation. So I would just say, Ignacio, this is the important thing, just to have a really um, solid uh, sense of right view, that, you know, uh, that understanding that uh, these negative aspects of the mind are not for our benefit and happiness. They're not permanent. But, and we can recondition the mind. We can develop the mind in good states. We can develop the mind in wisdom that can liberate us. So if we have that view, it helps. It gives meaning to all the, uh, the darkness and the suffering that people experience. Uh, because that meaning is what um, transforms it, really transforms it. So I hope that answered it a little bit. All right, and... Thank you, Arjan. We have a few online questions, so we'll, as you said, we'll just alternate. Yeah, all right. Hello. The first online question is, um, my uncle is an alcoholic yep. and started drinking 
because of COVID-19 again. Yeah. What can I say, if anything, to help him? Thank you. Right, yes. It's, a, it's a yes. What to say to your uncle who's uh, drinking, gone back to drinking because of COVID-19. And uh, the, it is difficult in, in those situations because what people are looking for, isn't it, when they turn to alcohol, when they turn to drugs, is looking for happiness, um, a relief from the uh, suffering, the difficulties they're experiencing in life. And so uh, this is what they're using, in a sense, to anaesthetize themselves to the difficulties and also to experience some happiness and relief. So to help um, your uncle uh, with this problem is very, very difficult. But to see, uh, one of the first things, of course, is to see, hmm, is it really helping you? If you can really, if you can get the sense of um, this is a problem, then he can do something about it. So often people in our lives, they've got difficult situations, but if they don't see it as a problem, nothing can change. It's only when they see it as, yeah, this is really making a mess of my life. It's making a mess of my relationships, my family, my friends. Then they can get the incentive incentive to change. But of course, you know, one of the uh, other factors on the more positive side is to, to give, um, you know, uh, be an example of positive qualities, you know, kindness and caring and these things. But uh, to, to be able to, to get your uncle to turn around, I think he has to see it as a problem, as a difficulty, something that he can, and also to give him the strength that he doesn't need this to deal with the problems of life. And often, uh, you know, uh, one way we can give up a negative habit is by taking up a more positive habit, <laughs> something that we get some value out of. I don't know what your uncle gets value out of, but something that he really that he can enjoy, that can replace the alcohol. Um, then, you know, that can give him an alternative source of happiness, because that's what we all need: is this happiness. And unfortunately, I think with alcohol and drugs, people are looking for it in the wrong place. <laughs> and they soon, they realise that to a certain extent, but they get caught up in a cycle of addiction and it's very hard for them to let go of it because it's become a pattern, it's become part of the programming that runs, runs their life almost automatically, especially if addiction is really strong. It's very, very tough to break out of that cycle. So thank you very much for that, and good luck with your uncle. <laughs> good luck with your uncle. So, but certainly not lecturing him. That one, <laughs> that generally doesn't help. Actually, here we are. Would you like to ask? Yes, very nice. Hello. Thank good morning. Thank you for the inspiration talk. Yeah. I have a very small request, if possible. Yeah, yeah. For for your next talk, can you bring us again a small Nasruddin story for us? A what? Nasruddin story. Oh, a Nasruddin story. Yeah, All time, right, yes. Possible. Yes, yeah. yes, of course, yes. I can, um, can. I think the, the Nasruddin story that links particularly with the uncle too is the one that I often tell, which is Nasruddin looking for the key to his house. And uh, he's lost the key to his house and uh, he's outside his house at night and he's looking for the key 
under a street light. Very interesting that there were street lights at that time. And uh, then his neighbour comes out and sees that uh, he's looking for something. And he asks him, what are you, what are you looking for, Nazarudin? And Nazarudin says, I'm looking for the key to my house. And he said, where did you lose it? And he said, oh, somewhere here, I think. And no, he, he says, oh, he says, well, I'll help you find it. I'll help you find it. And they're um, looking around, and after a while, he, they don't find it. He says, where did you lose it? He says that to Nazarene. Where did you lose the key? People say that all the time, isn't it? Where did you lose it? Well, if I knew, lose, I knew where I lost it, it wouldn't be lost. <laughs> but being Nazarene, of course, he knew where he lost it. He said, in the house. <laughs> and he said, why are we looking outside the house then? He said, ah, oh, the light's so much better out here. <laughs> And we are the same. We're looking for the key to our minds, to our hearts. Looking for the key of happiness outside the house, through the, the senses, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, all those things, instead of looking inside. And this is looking in the right place, which your uncle isn't doing at the moment. It's looking outside, looking for our happiness from those things that we see, hear, smell and taste and touch. And a spiritual path doesn't begin until we actually realise that. Yes, there's a world out there, a lot of pleasant things, a lot of unpleasant things. But really, the place where real happiness lies, where real satisfaction lies, where real wisdom lies, is in our hearts and our minds. And when we realise that, we've got a spiritual practice. Most people... They're content to be out there playing in the five, the five sense world. It's a playground for them, but they also realize it's quite a dangerous playground too because often a lot of those five sense experiences lead to addiction. We get really addicted to uh, things like alcohol, drugs. We get addicted to seeing particular things, whether it be videos, or what, whatever, hearing certain things, the addictions, the quality of addiction arises very easily with the five senses. And it doesn't lead to happiness. It's just become an automatic loop that, uh, like a, a recording that's playing over and over again, compelling us to do things and uh, totally out of control. <laughs> so, Oh, that's one Nazarudin story. There we are. Do we have one? We'll have one more question. Uh, that wasn't quite a question. It was a request. So we'll have another question from someone oh, right, here, yeah. and then we'll we have another online question. All right. Thank you, Arjun. We have to finish off soon, I think. Yeah. Thank yes, you very much, Arjun, for yes. the talk this morning. Very oh. helpful. Good. So you said it's important to keep the mind interested in the breath. Yeah. What's the simplest way to do that, please? Yeah. It's, the simplest way and it would be what my, one of my teachers said, and this is Ayakima, a famous German nun, who I met in 1993, here. I think it was here, yeah, 1993, I think we were here. And she said, the way to keep the mind interested in the breath or the object is whatever works. <laughs> the, way, the way I do, and I think uh, she used it quite a bit too, and Ajahn Brahma has used it, is to combine a wholesome, pleasant emotion, feeling with the breath, a pleasant perception with the breath, make the breath interesting, 
because of that. A pleasant experience, the breathing in and having, for instance, the perception of, I'm on holiday, I'm free. <laughs> you know, this feeling, breathing in and breathing out, can help us stay with the breath. But there are other ways. A feeling is a very good one because we're driven by emotions. As long as they are positive emotions, very, very useful because not only do, does it help us stay with the breath, it helps us develop those emotions in everyday life. We can get good at doing that. And, and that's a, um, like a, a programming that's very useful. It's, it creates part of our character, our personality, and it, it will become second nature to us that way. But there are other ways, too, to develop interest. And one of my teachers, Idor Utejanir, said, curiosity is a very good way. You know, if you're interested and curious, that is a very good way. But if you're doing a lot of meditation, a lot of breath meditation, or whatever meditation, keeping the curiosity going is, a, is quite difficult. It is quite difficult because you think, you know, we, we can get the experience of us just the same, really. <laughs> there's there's nothing, nothing new, so what's there to be curious about? But um, this is also another possibility, curiosity. Yes, James? But if you're, if you're, if you're having good feelings or yeah. that, about the breath, isn't that thoughts as well, though? That's a good question. Usually you can use some reflectional thoughts to begin up, to bring up that feeling. But feeling is not actually exactly thinking, actually. Feeling is an emotion. So it's, it is separate from the thinking. Thinking can support our emotions. For instance, you know, if we're angry and upset, we start to think about that person, what they said, what they did. And over and over again we go over it. We get angrier and more upset. But this feeling of emotion is the emotion that we're developing is separate or, or, or caused by that thinking. But the, the emotion can be enough just on its own, actually. So we use reflection of some sort to bring up, you may say thinking, to bring up a positive or wholesome feeling, but then stay with that feeling. Because feeling is what really uh, focuses us, really drives us. The thinking is, is it supports that, either positively or negatively, but you know, we're not so interested in the thinking once there's a strong feeling. If you're feeling very happy, you're not going to start thinking about all sorts of other things. If you're feeling very content, if you're feeling very peaceful, the thinking's just going to drop out because you're quite happy to be where you are. You're, you know, you're content, quite peaceful. So the feelings are, are what really drive us. And that's why Veda Nupasana, Veda Nupasana is such an important um, uh, contemplation in Satipatthana, in mindfulness uh, practice. So uh, very, very important. But the feeling can be used in a positive way, a wholesome feeling. So thank you very much. That's good. I hope that was sort of okay. Thank you. Yeah, and maybe one last question. One last question. Um, there are quite a few questions yeah. um, that have been posted, and I'm yeah. just wondering which is probably the most <laughs> difficult. manageable, but also the most yeah. useful in terms of hearing an answer to. Yeah. Um, I might just, uh, with uh, requesting forgiveness from the person who's going to be skipped, um, but there was a question about how do we combat thoughts of loneliness? How do we combat 
thoughts of actually a very uh, very good way to com- combat thoughts of loneliness is to develop thoughts that connect us that interconnect us with people and that of course in, uh, is you know meta kindness friendliness meditation and I know I lived in a cave for eight years in the forest in Sri Lanka on the side of a mountain it was very very pleasant and I didn't really experience loneliness much at all, you know, because I had a meta practice as well, you know, this sense of kindness that connects us to other people, to to ourselves. When we feel, uh, when we have that sort of kindness and friendliness to ourselves, you don't really feel alone. But then when we also radiate or share that feeling, with others, you know, those that are close to us. This is the way I do it. Those that are close to us, animals, people, all beings, really. Then radiating it further and further. It gives a sense of interconnection. But also the other four uh, Brahma-viharas, we call them, or as Ayakima, called them the four supreme emotions, do the same. When we have compassion for ourselves or for others, that connects us. When we have joy for uh, other people's success or their good qualities, that connects us. And when we have equanimity, this is this sense of acceptance of uh, situations where we can't make, there can't be any change, we can't make a change at that moment, either with ourselves, you know, sometimes the program's running and there's not much we can do about it at that moment, and with other people too. We understand, we can accept them, we realise that we are all products of our actions of body, speech and mind. That's what's making us. And uh, we can't change it overnight, but we can gradually recondition. So that's how we can um, uh, develop this sense of um, overcoming loneliness. And of course, you know, one of the best, most practical ways is giving. Now, if this person, for instance, every day thinks of something they can do for somebody else, something they can give to somebody else, not necessarily material, just some kind word or a kind thought, make it a practice, then there will, it will develop this sense of connection and then loneliness can reduce, that feeling of loneliness will reduce. So it's a very practical way of doing it. At the same time, it can bring a lot of happiness and also some surprising, <laughs> surprising uh, reactions too, because you can't... You can't tell how people will respond when you do something for them. Sometimes if you do something kind for a person, they, 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 they may, get, may get shocked or, 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 or think, what do, you, what, what do you want from me? You know, that idea. So it's quite interesting. Other people just be so pleased, so happy that you, you did something like that. And you see um, on the internet, don't you, lots of these shorts about random acts of kindness I must admit, I've seen some of them and I think, looks set up to me. <laughs> it doesn't look, it looks a bit too orchestrated, you know, that, uh, but some of them quite, you know, go to the heart, but some look a bit too organised and um, contrived, one might say. But to do a very simple practice of, of your own where you give something every day, and you do it deliberately, consciously, and making it part of your practice, then that will shift that loneliness. And the other thing that's also very useful for people who feel lonely is a pet. (laughs) A pet is great, whether it be a dog, cat, goldfish or bird, whatever it is. 
or a plant, even plants. Some people feel really, you know, a sense of connection with plants and nurturing a plant, making it grow and all those things, of course. Yeah, so, so those are all possibilities for, for uh, reducing this feeling of loneliness, promoting a sense of connection and interconnection. We all are in reality. So thank you very much for that this morning and thank you for that question. And now we can uh, pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha if you'd like to. And to finish off, and you're welcome to come to the, um, the lunch diner next door. As uh, Langdon mentioned, there won't be a arms round, you know, with the offering of rice, um, but come over and we'll have a blessing and uh, then you can share some food together. So thank you very much. Here we go.